I don't know who you are, young lady, but you certainly know how to handle yourself well. Batman! Batgirl? Batgirl? Batgirl! Yes, Batgirl! This fan pal. This is Batman Land. Our purpose here is quite serious. Each week we chat about the 1966 Batman TV show. We might as well get a few laughs out of it. We discuss the episodes that aired this week on SBS Vice Land. My name is Dan Barrett. I work on an SBS website called The Guide. This week I'm joined in studio by the fiercest of all kitty cats, the tabby cat of podcasting. It's Nick Bassine. It is perfectly nice to be here. What did you think of that? Oh, look, I was impressed. Yeah, great. Yeah. In fact, let's just drop the microphones and be done here. Do you get it? Oh, I got it. You get it because of the perfect? Oh, that, was, I, I that, that wasn't what I thought you were getting at. But I, I, made, I, I made it like a long purr, like, a, like what a, a noise that a cat might make. Yeah, I do get that. Because of Batman. Oh, I get, okay, yeah. 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 All right. Hey, Nick. Hey. I reckon we should talk about some Batman episodes. Let's. We've got two episodes here. One called The Bloody Tower, which aired originally on the 6th of December, 1967. Disgusting. Then we're going to follow it up with a little episode called Catwoman's Dress to Kill, and they aired on the 14th of December, 1967. Meow, meow, meow. Meow, meow. Have you got the meow mix ready to go? Uh, meow, 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 meow. Yep. Now, Nick Pacine, the first part of these amazing episodes we're talking about is the third part of a three-part storyline. Not at all confusing. Took us all the way from Gotham City to Londinium. Right. Last week's Batman Land, we covered the first two parts of it, but we still got this third part to discuss. You and I completely wrapped by what happened in last week's episode. I was in um, like a state of tense anticipation until I watched the third episode, which really tied it all together. Oh, dude, tell me about it. Personally, I have not been able to concentrate on anything all week. I've got friends and family of whom I haven't spoken to. They're wondering where you are. They are. And my home life is just a mess now. I'm letting things pile up. My your, kitchen needs to be cleaned and I can't get to that. because Your I'm just, office phone has been... Re- the. The boss wants to see you. Well, I haven't even been into work all week because <laughs> I've just been walking the streets just wondering what happened in this final episode. Your out-of-office message is disturbing <laughs> and gives no indication as to when you're coming back. Yeah, I probably should change that. But anyway, Nick Bassine, despite the fact that I've been completely just disheveled by this entire experience, I don't remember what happened last week, let alone what happened in these episodes. Can you please remind us, where are we at with this week's Batman? Okay, so we kick it off with Batman and Robin running away from the deadly fog. I'm getting out of here. They just run away from it. Cheerio. Problem solved. Lady Peasoup and Lord Fog are about to murder Batgirl in their dungeon. It seems a pity that we have to dispose of her, doesn't it? Batman and Robin try to rescue her, but Robin gets stung by a bee and paralyzed, and Lord Fog pushes Batman down the dungeon stairs. Look out behind you, Lord Fog! Aunt Harriet wanders onto the set. I'm sorry to bother you here. That's it. The girls try to tear Robin apart. I'm Ava about you, Robin. He runs away. Robin got away, Governor. Batman enchants a rope and climbs out of the dungeon with Batgirl. Yes, there's more to old Indian fuckier tricks than one might suspect. Batman and Robin stop Lord Fogg and Lady Peasoup and the finishing schoolgirls from robbing the crown jewels from the Tower of London. The crown jewels. The crown jewels? There's a fight and everyone gets arrested. Hip, hip, chin, chin, and toodaloo. Back in Gotham, the President of the United States thanks Batman. Thank you for calling, sir. And Catwoman steals some police clothes. Now, you mentioned the deadly fog. That's right. Wasn't that Mel Torme? I see what you're doing there. I don't like it. Oh, yeah, because he was the velvet fog. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. This is a tough room. I think we owe that 
a lot more silence, like extended silence. Wait, I didn't, should I go into the next synopsis? Yeah, just roll into the next. What happened? Okay, so as Batgirl wins a fashion award for some reason, Catwoman destroys everyone's hair at the award luncheon. No, not our hair, anything but that. Batman and Robin don't want Batgirl to help fight her because she's a woman. Catwoman wants to steal the golden fleece. The golden what? The golden fleece. From Belgravia, the most valuable garment on earth. A million dollars worth of 24 karat gold cloth. She interrupts another fashion show. Let no one say that Catwoman is not the best dressed woman in the world. But Batman and Robin try to stop her from doing whatever it was she was planning on doing, it's unclear. Holy dilemma. They fail, of course, so Batgirl has to save them. Best dressed crime fightress in America. Catwoman sprays Batgirl with something and ties her up and gets ready to murder her. Then she gets past zero security to gas the Queen of Belgravia somehow. Meanwhile, Alfred dresses up as a hippie janitor to save Batgirl, who helps Batman and Robin dance fight Catwoman's goons. Commissioner Gordon presents them all with medals from the Royal Order of the Belgravian something. I didn't really catch it. The Royal Order of the Belgravian God. It's from the Queen for saving uh, the Golden Fleece. That's it. You're missing something. Oh, and of course, the Vietnam War rages on. Nicholas Bassine, great synopsis. Thank you very much. Really appreciated all of that. You got us up to scratch as to what's going on. That's I right. now remember clearly where we're at. I remember that Batman was very insistent to Robin that they drive on the left-hand side of the road. That's right. That's how they drive over there mm. and, and here. Yeah. It felt very natural to me seeing this. Um, now, I believe this is the first time we've seen Robin driving the Batmobile. That's right. He, I, don't, I, I believe he has not been allowed to drive the Batmobile previously. No, he hasn't. So it's only now that he's got his license that he's been permitted to do so. Under a very strict order from Batman, make sure you're on the left-hand side of the road. That's right. Have you ever driven in America? No, I've never done that. So actually, I've never driven outside of Australia, I don't think. No, I definitely haven't. So yeah, I, I don't know how, how did you get around. You did, oh, you didn't rent a car. You just um, took public transportation. Uh, in the US. Yeah, yeah I was in LADC in New York. So okay. everyone knows in LA, you just go by foot everywhere. That's right. It's a walk, yeah. real great walking city. Yeah. Well-known fact. Absolutely. No, you got these things called Ubers, although I didn't take Uber. I took the US uh, preferred version, which is Lyft. Because Uber is evil now, is that right? Well, from what I understand from all the podcast ads, Nick, uh, Uber are now rethinking the way that they've been approaching customer service and are trying to do things better. Oh, good for them. Yeah. Great. That's what the ads tell me. I don't know how accurate that is. But at the time, it was very anti-Uber, so I was driving around in Lyft. And uh, I have myself a five-star rating <laughs> with Lyft. I do not have a five-star rating for Uber, but we will not talk about that. Uh-oh. Mm. You've been belligerent. Yeah. But anyway, the Batman uh, TV show, let's focus on that a bit more. Okay. Uh, Robin, the Bloomin' Boy Wonder, as named by Lord Fogg. What's that? The Bloomin' Boy Wonder climbed over the main gates? Uh, yeah, so he ends up tripping over an African death bee beehive. That's right. And I actually laughed out loud. This got an audible laugh from me. Mostly when, like, the puppet bee came out. This African bee phenomenon, it was, there, was some, there was a killer bee thing happening for, I guess, decades, because I remember it in the 90s, the Killer Bees, there was a joke about it on The Simpsons. Yeah, but this isn't like a 60s thing onwards. Like, wasn't Killer Bees really like a late 90s thing? I thought so. Yeah. But it clearly was a thing back then as well. Evidently, there was something going on. It would have been nice if someone had done some research about uh, the history of African Killer Bees. Mm, I should have gotten onto that. Yeah. Oh, well. 
missed opportunity. Yeah. Uh, I did question. There was a point where Batman was hesitant to open Batgirl's briefcase because if he did so, he may have learned secrets about her true identity. And at this point, I'm wondering, how is that Batman doesn't know that Barbara Gordon is Batgirl? Like, he's supposed to be the world's best detective, but clearly there's just evidence that he's the world's worst, world's best detective. I think over the course of these three seasons, if we've learned anything, it's that Batman is not the world's best detective. He's a dunce. The thing is, what if maybe he is the world's best detective, and that just speaks very poorly of all the other detectives in the world? Yeah, that's true. Can I ask you a production question, Nicholas? Please. What is the one thing you've learned about the way that they film this TV show? They've got, especially in the third season, they've got one black box set studio, and they just build every set in there. I was thinking more maybe camera angles. Oh, well, as I learned very late in the game, the bad guys are filmed uh, askew a bit. They're mm. on an angle, whereas the good guys are filmed straightforward. Okay, now my question to you, and I've never really considered it until this episode, because I suspect this episode is doing it differently, but there's this thing where Batman comes into the lair of our villains in this episode, and immediately he is filmed on an angle, despite the fact that he's the hero in shot and the villains aren't around to be seen, at least initially. That's a conundrum for the cinematographer right there. Yeah. Like, that's different, isn't it? Like, surely, just because you're in a villain's lair doesn't immediately mean that you get an angle camera? Or maybe it does. I don't know. Have we? I was very confused by this. I didn't notice that. I assume that it's because Batman, he's a good guy, so whenever Batman's on screen, it's uh, straightforward. I mean, you'd think it would be, but in this episode, very much at an angle. Strange. He went down to the dungeon where he rescued Batgirl. Everyone angled. So is it the location that's angled or is it the people? I don't know. This is the question for the bad ages at this point. Hey, how impressed with you with the ability of Batman to get the Indian magic rope trick happening? Uh, I was super impressed. Mm. I don't think I've ever seen Batman do that before. No, I believe this was a first. Uh, exactly. What was that little chant that he was giving? Because that to me felt maybe just a little bit off. Uh, I felt pretty off. I, I don't know. Is it Indian? Is it definitely Indian? Well, that traditionally, it's Indian? traditionally, like that's where that magic trick is supposed to have. Or I thought maybe originated. it was Middle Eastern. Well, my understanding has always been like Indian, like the Indian magic rope trick. But anyway, I did some reading up as to how you actually do that trick. Isn't it with a flute? I uh, thought there's a flute involved. I believe there's a flute involved. But anyway, in terms of getting the rope happening, uh, there's a number of theories as to how this is done. And one of the major ones is the idea that the rope itself has bamboo with like little bits that sort of lock into place as it goes up. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, okay. that kind of checks out, I think. That's about right. Checks out in what way? In that I can see it's a plausible idea. Do you think it's plausible that Batman and Batgirl would climb up that bamboo stiffened rope? Uh, well, part of the, from what I was reading on the Indian Rope Trick Wikipedia page, sure. Uh, usually the trick would involve like a small boy climbing up the rope. A small boy. It always said small boy. It's probably not going to be a large boy. Okay. Yeah. Because right. you're not going to have many people in the audience going, look at that chunky boy climbing the rope, dear. Whoa, why is he got to be chunky? Why are you fat shaming boy, this boy? Or it's the imaginary chunky boy. Oh my God. This took an ugly turn. As a former chunky young boy... Former. I feel okay with this. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> I'm okay with it. I was also a, I'm also a former chunky boy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the name of uh, our next duo. podcast. Uh, and yes, and our rap duo. <laughs> <laughs> the chunky boys of Batman land. 
I think that's got a great ring to it. Oh, look, I'm for it. Uh, do you have a fog reverser in your pocket? Or is that too personal a question? Yes, of course. I always carry a, what'd you call it? Fog reverser? Fog reverser. I don't understand what makes this fog so deadly. They never explain that. In three episodes, they never managed to explain what is so bad about this fog. There is one strange thing that's been cropping up in these episodes, and particularly the three-parter in England. I think on at least two or three occasions through the episodes, Barbara Gordon has deflected the question of, oh, how did you know this or why are you here, with it just, I'll explain this later. <laughs> and then does it ever come up again? Well, when is later, Barbara? I think that's pretty smart. Yeah. So I'm just going to do that from now on with everything in life. Hey, Dan, why haven't you finished this article yet? I'll explain later, but first let's go and do this instead. Absolutely. It's fantastic. It's really going to work for me big time. Now, Nick, this episode does in fact have a sad element to it. Because Robin is uh, murdered at the end. Yeah, which was a dark turn for the show, I'll admit. But, Absolutely. You know, one that I didn't expect would happen so early into the run. Uh, no, in this episode, we actually said goodbye to Aunt Harriet's. I'm sorry to bother you. Yeah, Aunt Harriet's appearance was very curious. She just kind of shows up in the commissioner's office. Yeah, so what I thought was maybe a little bit sad about it, so Madge Blake, who played Aunt Harriet, uh, she was phased out of the series for season three. And so she made, I think, one appearance early in the season and then there's the second appearance. So we've only had two appearances and it's the last time that she appears in here. So they don't actually rise her out of the show, but rather she just doesn't turn up again. But there are a few episodes where um, Alfred dresses up as Aunt Harriet. It just Look, to... don't tease me. Thank you both for your time. But Madge Blake, who at this point in her life was actually really quite unwell, uh, she passed away a year after the series had wrapped. Oh, that's terrible. It is terrible. Uh, apparently Madge Blake, they wanted to get rid of much earlier in, but Adam West had gone to the bat for her and said, gone to the bat for her? Yeah. He went out there and he started defending Madge Blake and he really just made sure that she was looked after on the show and being given the opportunity to have like this final appearance. And based on that, I actually think it's a bit sad that Adam West wasn't in the scene with her because apparently he really had gone quite considerably out of his way to make sure that she was fairly treated. The least they could have done is give her some sort of romantic um, storyline or something. Would well, be nice. She just shows up and says, hey, where's Bruce and Dick? We don't know Aunt Harriet. Get lost. That's yeah. the scene. I mean, I do believe she was actually really quite unwell. So there's probably not that much you can really expect of her at this point in the series. Well, uh, yeah, that sounds fair enough. So you watched the second episode, I assume. Indeed. So let's say cheerio <clears throat> to that first episode and move on to episode two. Cheerio. You're saying cheerio because... Um, because that's what Robin said to Lady Penelope as she was being taken away by the Bobbies. Do people still say cheerio in England? Uh, I haven't been to England for a number of years. I presume so. Really? i got to watch East Enders for goodbye? often. For goodbye? I'm not too sure. Cheerio? That sounds like something that they haven't said since uh, the 80s, maybe. Maybe since 1967. Yeah, maybe. Mm. Yes, please, let's uh, say cheerio to that. Pip, pip, uh, so long. And instead, let's say tally-ho to the new episode where we've got Catwoman. Now, we've discussed on this show how Catwoman has been the best thing about this show. Well, I don't know if the character's the best thing, but Julie Newmar as Catwoman is has definitely been the, the best, best thing. thing. Yes, Because her performance really elevated every episode that she's in. And she's legitimately just this amazing comedic performance within the confines of this show. As yet, I still don't think I've seen her in anything other than Batman. She's in a couple of other things, but I, I don't... I don't think I've seen them. Yeah, so the reason why she's not in season three of this is she was filming McKenna's Gold, a film that I've not seen. Right. Apparently she's very good in Seven Brides of Seven... Oh, I think I've seen that. That's a musical. I believe so. Have you seen Uli's Gold? I believe that might be a slightly different film to McKenna's Gold. Okay. Yeah. 
Well, we'll agree to disagree. <laughs> uh, but we do have here a brand new Catwoman in place because Julie Newmar couldn't turn up. Ms. Eartha Kitt. That's right. Yeah. And she's great. I think she's uh, fantastic in it. Julie Newmar was more understated and kind of and dry. And mm. Eartha Kitt is a little bit bigger and she inhabits, is more of a physical performance, seems like. And she does, as discussed, the purring a lot more. I was reading a couple of 1966 Batman blogs earlier today. Sure. And one of the blogs was talking about this episode and referred to her performance as being a bit more like a feral cat. Yes. As opposed to the more sort of refined house cats of Julie Newmar. Yeah, she's a bit more angry and um, ferocious. Yeah. And I thought that was a really sort of smart take on it. I would say I really liked her in this and I can totally buy into the idea of Catwoman when she gets killed and uses one of her nine lives, that she comes back as a different type of a cat. But at the same time, I just kind of wish that Eartha Kitts was able to get this level of performance and play a different role. Like there were a number of times through season two particularly where you couldn't have the Riddler in it. So there was issues with Frank Gorshin coming back. So they came up with a few alternate characters that were similar to the Riddler and they just had other actors play those roles. I kind of wish they'd done that for Eartha Kitt and given her a presence of her own. You're wishing Eartha Kitt had played the Riddler. I would love to have seen that. Actually, I think that would probably work quite nicely. I like that she's Catwoman. I mean, I really like Julie Newmar, and yeah. so she can't do it. I think it's a cool, different direction to go in. It's a different energy. It's fun. It's weird. I mean, the show is on on fumes at this point. Oh, it really is. Like, she did brighten up the show in a way that none of the guest stars really have for a few episodes. Aside from um, Glynis Johns, who I love, uh, the mother from Mary Poppins in mm. the previous episode, <laughs> she's a breath of fresh air. Now, she rocks up here at a fashion show where Batgirl, who is not in attendance, is awarded the Best Dressed Crime Fighteress. And this is part of the first annual Batty Awards. Accept and accepts a new award for Batgirl, Batgirl is uh, Commissioner Gordon, Gordon and Chief O'Hara. Chief O'Hara. Yeah, there's nothing weird about that. No, not Just at all. a female superhero um, getting a fashion award. Yeah, being accepted by some dudes. A couple of old creeps. <laughs> Did you notice um, before the award was announced what they were wearing, what the models were wearing? Uh, no, I didn't. What was? A mini moo A mini moo For evening wear. Mrs. Blanche Tura, who popularized the mini moo for evening wear. But maybe let's talk about the gentleman who was playing the fashion designer. Yeah, who was that? Uh, so it was a real world fashion designer. I thought that that... Guy was doing a great job. Yeah, so it's this guy named uh, Rudy uh, Gernreich. For the rest of this year, at least, the fashionable woman will be wearing less than ever before. There is a continuing trend towards mini dresses, mini gloves, and even mini shoes. Mini haha. <laughs> now, this guy, I thought, took more than a passing resemblance to Mark Hamill later in life. So if you look at him in Return of the Jedi, he has a very similar look to Rudy here. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. But Rudy Geinreich, he was a designer for TV. So he did some costumes for Space in 1999, as well as a couple of other shows over the years. Okay. But broadly, he was just like a general fashion designer. Now, his most notable creation was a topless bathing suit called the Monokini. Oh, now, when I say bathing, topless bathing topless. suits, well, this one I thought. But anyway, I did a Google search, which, as I learned, 
maybe not the Google search to be doing for work because a topless bathing suit is exactly what you think it is. Oh. That is a topless bathing suit. Holy priceless collection of Etruscan snoods. So Catwoman turns up and she unleashes a bomb on everyone within the fashion community of Gotham. And the bomb's designed purely just to affect the hairdos of everyone who's at this luncheon. Very bizarre type of bomb. Yeah. Although scientifically, I guess that makes sense. It's just like how liquid would, affecting people's hair. How is that even possible? Nick, I'm not on trial here. What was great about that is that it leads to um, the sexist moment of the week, which was... Which one? Because this episode has a couple of It them. does have a few. Barbara Gordon, when upon hearing about what happened, says, um, ruin, ruin their hair, hair forever. forever. Catwoman really knows a woman's weak, weak spot. spot. That's crazy. A woman's weak spot is a box of chocolates. Everyone knows that. Dan... Mm. Yeah, so women care most about their hair is the message there, I think. Mm. Doesn't check out. Young Richard Grayson, he's off to his first school prom, but he doesn't know how to tie a bow tie. I don't know how to tie a bow tie. I wouldn't be too concerned about that, Dick. Alfred and I will give you the benefit of our vast years of experience. Thankfully, both Bruce Wayne and Alfred will be there to help him through such a trying experience. Once again, um, Dick Grayson's age and maturity comes into question because he's a heartthrob. Girls love him. Well, in the last episode, uh, Penelope was saying that he was, a, he was assaulted. Take the, their skin was coming off for him while it was yes. some sort of awkward phrasing. Yeah. And they assaulted him. Mm. And it's happened throughout the series that women are fainting all around him. But in this one, he talks about... When Batman brings up how attractive Catwoman is, he says it's something you'll know about in a couple of years. Has he not been given the birds and the bees speech? Well, the bats and the bees. Right. Or the birds and the bats. Either All of it sounds kind of unholy. Mm. But he's not kissed a girl yet? Has he not? Uh, or, a, or a boy, I suppose. Has he not been intimate yet? Or even thought about it? Looked at a dirty magazine under the covers? Nothing? Well, he's probably looked at dirty magazines because as we learned in an episode a few weeks ago, which you weren't here for that one, the person who has the most number of magazine subscriptions in Gotham City is Bruce Wayne. <laughs> so you so, so you presume that there's a few lying around the house. A few, uh, yeah, a few um, some tucked in the Bible. This is why Aunt Harriet isn't allowed into the parlor. It's not because that's where the button to get into the Batcave is. It's because of all the filthy magazines lying around the place. Shame. Mm. When was Playboy started? Early 60s. Yeah. I think maybe late 50s. Maybe late I 50s. think it's like a late, like yeah, 58 yeah. or something. Bruce Wayne's got a subscription. Or maybe not, if we believe um, the shipping stories. <laughs> Look, now, this is probably the point where we should probably talk about the difference between the Eartha Kit Catwoman to the Julie Newmar and Lee Merriweather one, which is that because this is a product of 1967, they were very sort of hesitant to have the idea of the sexual tension between Catwoman and Batman maintaining its way into this episode because you've got an African-American actress and a Caucasian actor. Now, just as part of TV in the 60s, that just wasn't the done thing. We're looking at maybe one of the most progressive things to happen on TV just uh, a year prior with Star Trek, which has Captain James T. Kirk and Lieutenant Uhura and the two of them were kissing on screen, but they weren't kissing for pleasure. Rather, they were being forced into it by some sort of like alien mind like issue taking place. So that's the only way they could get away with it in terms of an on-screen story. So there was still lots of squeamishness about that sort of thing in the well, 60s. in 1967, when the show was filmed, it was still illegal in many states for black people and white people to get married. 
Yeah, I mean, that's probably right. The Supreme Court case was decided in 67. So federally, they were allowed to get married from that point? Yeah, anybody in, in the US was allowed to get married interracially. And so no state laws could yeah. contravene? Okay. That's right. But up until no, that good. point, in, I don't know, I want to say 20 states or something, yeah, it was illegal. But I mean, I'd imagine that a law like that probably took a little while for TV to start reflecting the reality yeah, of yeah, absolutely. being legally permissible. Which is why I felt like even Batman saying... Catwoman's very attractive about a black woman is still revolutionary in a way. Yeah, I saw a comment online talking about this episode and someone had commented at the fact that even the act of having an African-American Catwoman with two Caucasian like goons next to her. Yeah, that would have been a Even that's fairly progressive. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think that in all of the, like when with Black Panther, not, not to take anything away from Black Panther, obviously, but you can forget what a big deal it was for Eartha Kitt to do what she did in only three episodes. Yeah. And this is, so I mean, this I think is actually fairly progressive for a number of reasons, but the fact they weren't allowed to have them in a romantic relationship seems very strange from a 2018 standpoint. That's a bummer. Yeah. But if you sort of think about it in a context of where US culture was at at the time, like you understand why it's the case, but still. But you've gone so, I'm sure there's a story there, but you've gone so far as to cast a black woman to take over the role of a white woman. And towards the end of the show's run, the ratings are flagging. I'd just go for it. I'm wondering if even that was a fairly progressive act in its own right. Where, like, I'm sure there were probably meetings about that, whether or they could get I away would, with it. Yeah, I would assume so. So, I mean, I was thinking earlier about casting her as a different character just on the basis of, I think it'd just be cool to see her as a different character and not this sort of iconic Julie Newmar performance character. But, like, there probably was that conversation about, do we just make up another villain for her? Because Eartha Kitt was a well-recognized pop culture figure at that point. I am. So, I mean, there's obviously value in having her on screen as an actress. How recognized she was is unclear to me. Oh, no, wasn't she a fairly big deal? She was a stage actress. She was in I Spy. No, she was nominated for an Emmy, I think, in I Spy. Like she'd done a bunch of TV and films until yeah, that point. Yeah. I think her first on-screen performance, and I don't have it written down, but I think it was about like 1948. Yeah, so I guess she'd been around in one way or another for a while. Yeah. You know, there's a big debate over the um, black characters playing white iconic characters versus just coming up with new roles, new heroes. Yeah. I mean, I kind of get that to a certain degree, but there's also the thing that we live in an era now where... It's hard to really launch new characters yeah, because people just don't want to impossible. give them a chance. So maybe in this sort of environment where if people aren't willing to give a chance to a new character, like why shouldn't we recast characters? And if you think about the Donald Glover example about Spider-Man, yeah, right. which makes perfect sense to me, which is that a kid of, you know, Peter Parker's like background and cultural upbringing, like it doesn't actually make sense for him to be a white kid coming out of like poor New York anymore. He's probably a Hispanic kid or an African-American kid. So it actually makes sense to me that he wouldn't be a white guy. So if you're making a contemporary Spider-Man story, sure. it doesn't make sense to have a young white kid in that role. Yes. And because of the way the marketplace is currently, we're not at a place where Hollywood or, I'm not sure about the comic book marketplace, but Hollywood is not going to try to launch a new franchise that has to compete with the Avengers and Batman and Superman. It's just going to be too hard mm. when they're so obsessed with uh, brand recognizability. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they made a Black Lightning show. I didn't know anything about that character, but it was a, already a character, so I guess somebody knows who that guy was. Yeah, so Hollywood's generally willing to play around with known IP, but it doesn't need to be like globally recognized IP. 
Yeah, but it's got to be known. Yeah. It's got to be something to somebody, which is, I don't know, I, I question it a little bit if you're going to do Black Lightning. I mean, how many people know about know Black Lightning? Yeah, and I always thought the Black Lightning show was a little bit off, but apparently people are liking it. I liked. I watched yeah. several episodes. I I liked aspects of it. I like, but it, it's super. It's just super cheesy. That's all. Well, yeah, I haven't really liked many of those CW superhero shows, yeah, yeah. but I actually really do quite like the Black Lightning character. So well, he's, he's been. A, he fights in the streets for for justice and all of that kind of thing. I, I like that. Yeah. So in the comics, and I don't know if this is always the case with him, but it's usually in the like slum areas of Metropolis. So while Superman's out there fighting like the big alien invasions and that kind of thing. You got Black Lightning, who's really fighting yeah. for the little man out in you know the slum areas. Mm. Yeah, it's all right. It's just like that's what a lot of black superheroes do. That's what Luke Cage does. Yeah. Now the thing that I've always found a little bit awkward, and yes, Black Lightning is a way cool character, like superhero name. But at the same time, there's always that weird thing from the '70s, particularly yeah. where any African American hero suddenly black becomes something. black something or other. Yeah, yeah, always awkward. Uh, one of the more sort of awkward moments is. Uh, there's in the Green Lantern comics, you've got Green Lantern, who was Hal Jordan, who's like, you know, white guy. He's not the first Green Lantern, but, you know, he's like the most recognized one. In the 70s, they introduced this character, John Stewart, not to be uh, confused with the Daily Show, well, former Daily I, Show host. I think they are the same person. Different guys. Okay. But you got John Stewart, African-American guy who, I'm trying to remember what he was in the original incarnation. I want to say that it was a community organizer like Obama, but it might be slightly different. I know they retconned his uh, career to be an architect at some point. But when he's first given the Green Lantern ring, so he then becomes a hero on the same stature of the Hal Jordan character, he gets this ring on his finger and is like, Green Lantern, no, baby, I'm Black Lantern. Oh. Yeah. And they never called him Black Lantern. But like it was just this weird panel. Like Just seconds after he becomes a superhero, he's talking about calling himself Black Lantern. Yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, it's the 70s. Yeah. Did Eartha Kitts purr uh, remind you of Homer Simpson's? <laughs> it sounds uh, the it same. Didn't come to mind, but now I can't get it you out. You know of what my I'm head. talking about? When, oh, why no? When Homer's turned on and he makes that. <laughs> that's the one. Yeah. Yeah. You didn't need to raise your eyebrows like that and look at me like that. <laughs> See, I, I wish that hadn't happened. Nick Bassine, I'd like to maintain a professional working relationship please, with you. Please. <laughs> oh God, it's just getting worse and worse. <laughs> Um, hey, interesting production trivia. Apparently this episode, while it's the first to be broadcast with the Eartha Kit as Catwoman, there's actually a two-part episode with her and the Joker in a few weeks' time, and that's actually the first Eartha Kit Catwoman episodes. This is supposed to air after that. What? Wait, <laughs> you mean in the original run this aired? No, no. So it's broadcast on SBS Viceland in the same order that is the accepted like broadcast schedule. Okay. But in the production cycle... They actually oh, filmed this episode after she'd already made an appearance in the show. So in, in the other episodes, do you think that they're kind of reintroducing her? There's lines like, um, Catwoman, you've changed. Look, I mean, who knows? So we'll find out in a few weeks' time, but yeah. yeah. Uh, I have to say, uh, just to get away from Catwoman for one second, I, I have gone on record being aghast at how dumb Batman and Robin are, but I feel like they went to new heights in this episode with the covering their eyes in yeah. the dressing room with the fully clothed women. Like, before you go in there, you would check. Are you, are you, is everybody decent? And then, because they're bumping into wardrobe and plants and saying, excuse me, madam. It was kind of funny, but it, like these people are idiots. See, I think that'd be funny if there were no models left in the room. Yeah. Like, to me, that's <laughs> yes, funny. it's funnier if there's no one there. But 
I mean, this show squanders lots of um, good joke opportunities. This episode squandered so many good jokes. We close our eyes, we can't see anything. A sound observation, Robin. Now, there were a couple of interesting guest stars in it that I think are probably worthwhile mentioning. So we talked about fashion designer Rudy a few minutes ago, but there's also a model, and she was one of the models wearing the Moomoo that you were yeah, talking about. Mini Moomoo. Uh, the model's name was Peggy Moffat. Now, she was uh, Rudy uh, Gainwright's real-life muse and a regular model for him. Okay. Now, she was one of the models on a stage, and what I thought was interesting is the role that she had prior to this was in the cinematic classic Antonioni's film Blow Up. Yeah, which is a great movie. Yeah. And so it got me thinking, like, he's a cinematic great himself. He's made a bunch of great movies. Uh, what's your favorite? I ask this because you're a bit of a film guy as well. My favorite is probably La Ventura, but I haven't seen these movies in a long time. What's La Ventura about? It's about an adventure. And is he the pet detective or is that a different one? Well, it's interesting that you bring that up because that is, that's a prequel to La Ventura. <laughs> I've got to catch up those pet detective films. Now, I haven't seen that, but I really like Zabriskie Points, which I think is the film he made after Blow Up. That's right. Great film. Now, Nick was saying the highlight of this episode, I think, is Alfred. Despite the fact that Barbara has worked with Alfred as an operative out in the field before, he still comes dressed in a disguise. And I didn't get that. Why couldn't he just say to uh, Batgirl, you know, Batgirl, quietly, it's me, Alfred, guy who helps you out a fair bit regularly. Because Batgirl would know that Batman knew that she was in trouble. And if Alfred showed up as himself, or if she knew that it was Alfred, then she would know that Batman tipped off Alfred and she would figure out that, oh, Alf Bruce Wayne is, is probably Batman. Let me maybe put forward this other way that Alfred would handle the situation. Okay. Okay. He's like, hey, Batgirl, it's me, Alfred, pulls down the disguise and says, hey, look, you know, guy that you know. She's like, did Batman tell you where I was? And then he says, no, he didn't, but I'll explain later. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I would I would have gone with that totally. Mm. Or if he had just said a few things that stereotypical British people say, that also could have deflected it. Chip chip, hero, hup yeah. hup, jum jum, <laughs> anything like that. You'd think that'd be enough. But yeah. she speaks the language now after having had her cultural experience recently in Londinium. I have to say that the way they raised the stakes at the end was very different to the way they do it in previous episodes where the stakes are unbelievably low and... And maintain so. Yeah. So apparently, if the Golden Fleece is not retrieved, Belgravia would declare war on the U.S. if it was stolen, and then the U.S. would have to destroy them in hours, and then the U.S. would have to support them for years. That's why they need to get the Golden Fleece so badly. I missed that entirely. Where was I? Nobody wants war. Gee, Batman. Belgravia is such a small country. We'd beat them in a few hours. Yes, and then we'd have to support them for years. Yeah. I think I was busy like looking at IMDb at the time because one of the people I was looking at was looking the up. Queen Bee has a attendant named, and um, the actor is Gerald Peters. Anyway, this guy is kind of interesting. So do you remember when we were talking about Von Craig entering Jor-El the series? as in Superman's father. Yeah, Superman's father. Right. Gerard Peters. Oh. <laughs> So when Yvonne Craig entered the series, we were talking about the fact that she was actually dating Elvis for a number of years. Yes. And so she had that relationship happening. So this guy, Gerald Peters, actually had a relationship with Elvis, not a romantic or a sexual relationship, as far as I'm aware, but rather he was actually Elvis's driver. Oh. Yeah. So what I thought was kind of interesting about him is this guy, he started up a company called London Town Livery Service. 
and it was in Beverly Hills and he used to drive around people. Now, one of his clients was Elvis Presley. This could be slightly wrong, the language around it was a little bit sort of weird, but it read to me that he had a couple of cars that he used for his business, but actually belonged to Elvis, and Elvis permitted it as long as he was willing to like just drop everything for Elvis when he needed him. Oh, great. So if that's actually the case, you know, how could Elvis? The more I hear about and read about Elvis, the more he seemed like a really swell guy. <laughs> this is actually what I'm finding as well. He loved his mother. Yeah. You don't That's find all. a more swell person than that. That's all you need to know. Mm. Nick Bassane, that brings us to the end of another Batman land. Oh. Now, before we get out of here, we do like to take a lesson away from Batman each and every week. Uh, what did you learn from The Great Bright Night? Well, until I watched this episode, I thought that there was only one way to climb up or down a ladder. Mm. But as it turns out, as Batman shows us, you can go down by facing outward and hold on to the ladder behind you and just step down like you're going downstairs. You've never done that before? No. Well, I, huh? well, you have lived half your life on a ladder. Oh, I spend a lot of time putting out Christmas lights every year. Right. Yeah, I did not think that that was possible. And I thought it was a strange choice, but it was nevertheless a lesson that I learned. Yeah, look, there was something that I heard, which wasn't something that I learned this week. It's just a good reminder. Crime, it's a bad habit. Uh, yeah, like smoking. Yeah. Absolutely. So that was just good to know. But something which I actually think maybe I did learn was that, and look, maybe I should have learned this earlier in life, but if there's a woman's dressing room, a man shouldn't enter it because you should not enter that hallowed and forbidden no man's land. <laughs> hallowed and forbidden. Yep. Fantastic. <laughs> what I liked about that line reading is you got a Catwoman who says that, oh, there's no way they'll come into this hallowed and forbidden no man's land. And then straight afterwards, Robin, as he's explaining why they shouldn't go in there, he says there's no way we can enter that hallowed and forbidden no man's land. Very funny. Yeah, it was a good line. I really enjoyed that. But Nick Bassine, we're done for another Batman land. Oh. Next week is another Egghead and Olga episode. That's Olga, Queen of the Cossacks. Uh, well, Egghead is my favorite Batman villain. I don't think that's true. Now, this is a very interesting episode to me because we saw Egghead and Olga, Queen of the Cossacks, mm -hmm. two weeks ago. Oh, there was the, that was weeks. the Russian episode. Well, of course, because it's Olga, Queen of the Cossacks. Anyway, it's an interesting episode because the two episodes, the two-parter we saw previously, are actually chapters one and three of a three-part storyline, and they just cut out episode two and threw it later into the season, and that's the episode we're watching next week, Nick. Oh, man. <laughs> Sounds like a great bit of television. I can't wait. It's going to be fascinating. I can't wait to see how they do this, but, you know, that's an adventure for next week. Until then, Nicholas Bassine, you're on Twitter. How do people find you and where? You can find me on Twitter at hairisawomansweekspot.org. That doesn't explain how you do it, but also, is there another address that people can maybe There's find? There's a little you? short, Nick Bazine. You can, yeah, Nick Bazine. Give that a go. Yeah. Uh, people can find me at the Dan Barrett. If you're enjoying the Batman Land podcast, leave hashtags around the place. Batman Land. Doesn't have to be on social media, just anywhere that you think's appropriate. Print it out. Print some stuff out. Leave it Print on the it street. Out. Yeah. Just a bit of material. Cover up all those missing dog posters. <laughs> you're a monster. I mean, I was thinking maybe that big report you've got to give to the boss. Just throw a few hashtag Batman lens in there. Yeah, that's right. Really yeah. bri brightens things up. If you're enjoying the podcast, leave reviews on your various podcast apps of choice, your Apple Podcasts, your Overcasts, your Pocket Casts. Helps people find the show. Nicholas Bazin, let's get out of here. 
We'll be back next week. Same Batman Land time, same Batman Land channel. <laughs>